Well, hi there. My name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and um, I'm excited wherever you are right now, if you're um, watching online or if you're at one of our Chase Oaks campuses. I'm glad that we could be together here on this last installment of our Names of God series. Now, one of the things that we have seen in this series, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, is that names matter. For many of us, though, I think it's safe to assume that, that for a lot of us, names probably don't matter quite as much as maybe they did for the people back in Bible times. Like, for instance, I don't actually know the meaning of my name, nor do I really care. Um, I don't really know the, na- the meanings of the names that my wife and I gave to our daughters. Uh, we just liked how they sounded. Um, and I've, there's probably a lot of people that are like that. But to God and to the, and to the cultures of the Bible, names mattered a lot. They carried special meaning. Sometimes they carried a lot of power behind those names. And that's especially true when we're talking about the names of God, as we have seen. These names are like invitations to get to know God better and to have a a deeper relationship with with, with Him because they kind of encapsulate these different elements of God's character. And that's certainly true with the name we're going to look at today. This name is... It is wonderful. Um, It can comfort us in our time of need when we go through seasons of wilderness and we just feel kind of lost and unseen. Um, It is powerful because when the people of God can represent what this name means, it really can change the world. The the name we're going to look at this weekend is El Roy. And I'm going to explain what it means here in just a second. But before I do, I want to let you know where I'm going in this message. There are two questions that I want to ask and sort of leave here in front of us for us to be thinking about as we learn more about what Elroy means. And the first question is this. What should it mean for us as individuals that God is Elroy? And the second question is more for us as a group. Like, what does it mean for us as, as followers of God who want to represent God's heart to the world? What does it look like to be the people of El Roy? El Roy means the God who sees. Which, at first, it doesn't sound all that impressive. You know, like, if, if God is God and he's everywhere, then, well, of course he sees. Like, he sees everything. And for a lot of us... It's not actually all that comforting to think about the fact that God sees everything. Like, maybe it'd be better if he didn't see, you know, everything. Have you guys seen these signs or these stickers? You can buy these. If you show to the next slide here. Um, Jesus. You can buy these stickers and these signs. You know, you can get them at Walmart. You can get them on Amazon. You can get a value pack. Put them all over your house. You know, look Jesus peeking around a bookcase or whatever. Say, I saw that. You can put them in your teenager's bedroom, you know, you can put them, you know, in your kid's dorm room, just to kind of add a little extra guilt that Jesus is watching, you know, behave yourself. And it's funny, and and there's actually an element of truth to this, because truly, like, nothing we ever do is really done in secret, which should give us pause before we do certain things. But the name El Roy is not given to sort of pile on guilt, you know, to sort of, uh, so that we could behave better. It's not about God spying on us. The name comes from kind of a crazy story in Genesis chapter 16. And to to understand that chapter, um, 
Earlier in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abram and Sarai, who would later be, their names would change to Abraham and Sarah, but God made a promise that he would make them into a great nation, and their descendants would be too numerous to count. And but the problem was, Abram and Sarai were, were an elderly couple that had never been able to have children. And so for God to fulfill this promise, um, he was going to have to do a great miracle. But Abram and Sarai believe God, and uh, they move to the land that God tells them to move to, and, and they have faith, and they wait for God to give them a baby. And that is great. They had faith. But that was back in Genesis 12. We're going to be looking at Genesis 16, where they've been sitting. This is 10 years later, and God has done nothing. And Abram and Sarai just keep getting older, and their faith is waning. So Sarai decides to take matters into her own hands, and she invokes a law that was legal at the time, which said that if a wife could not bear children, then that childless wife could provide her husband a concubine and then retain all legal rights to the offspring of that concubine. This is bonkers. But it was legal in that ancient culture, and so Sarai says, I'm going for it, I'm doing it. Uh, God is taking too long. So let's pick up the story in Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for this wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows that she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. And by the way, that word translated mistreated is a pretty strong word. It probably means physical harm. Okay, this is a crazy story. And I have all kinds of questions. Like, first, why is Sarai just mad at everybody? I mean, she's mad at God for taking too long. She's mad at... Uh, Hagar for not respecting her. She's mad at Abram. Like every, evidently, everything's Abram's fault. And why is Abram so passive? What you want me to sleep with her? Okay. Wait, you don't you don't like her anymore? Okay, no, do what you want. I'm out. And why is a crazy story like this even in the Bible? There's all kinds of crazy you know, stories that are going to pop up as we look at Genesis 16. And in fact, a lot of these questions we're not going to be able to answer um, today. Uh, we're, we are going to be doing another series on Abraham in the spring. And we're going to come back to Genesis 16 because this chapter is kind of an important chapter in the story and the life of, of Abraham. But what I want to focus on is Hagar. And let's just say here from the outset that this is a horrible story for Hagar. Hagar was mistreated and wronged in so many different ways in the story. She was wronged by her culture that allowed her to be enslaved in the first place. 
She was wronged by a legal system that allowed her to be offered as a concubine against her will with no legal rights to her own children. She was wronged by Abram for sleeping with her under those circumstances. She's wronged by Sarai, who after offering her to Abram, then physically abuses her and drives her in the wilderness, presumably to die. This is a horrible story. But the story continues. Look at what it says in verse 7. Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Now, whenever you see the proper name, angel of the Lord, which only happens in the Old Testament, but whenever you see that proper name, it is safe to, to say that is God making himself visible. So we can read this as, then God found Hagar. How does that work? God who knows everything, God who knows where each and every one of us are at all times. And like, what does it mean for, for a God that never loses anyone to find someone? Well, whenever that type of terminology is used, what, it, what it's conveying is that God is going to extra measures in order to connect with someone. Not so that he might know where they are, but so that they might know where he is. God sees and he seeks and he finds so that he might be found, so that he might impart some type of blessing. We see in, um, in John chapter 1, Jesus finds Philip, who would later who would become one of his disciples. And he talks with Philip a little bit. And then Philip runs off and talks to Nathaniel and tells Nathaniel, we found Jesus, the one that Moses and the prophets talked about. And it's like, wait a minute, Philip. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. But from our experience and from our sort of vantage point, it feels like we're the ones who find God. And people will talk like this. You know, they go through a, a crisis time and they find God in that. Or they go through a season of, of spiritual searching and they find God. And that's what it feels like, but that's not actually what happens. We don't find God. God is not lost. He finds us. So whenever we see that type of terminology in the Bible of someone finding God, it always comes right after God, God's pursuit of them. We are completely incapable of knowing God unless he, uh, unless he reveals himself to us. God is always the initiator, which means if you are within the sound of my voice and you are interested in knowing more about God, or maybe you've already fallen in love with God and you want to follow him or, or whatever, it's, it is comforting to know that God has been pursuing you for a very long time. And he wants us to know him so that we might experience his goodness. But look at what also it says there in verse 7. The angel, of Lord, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. God goes to her and reveals himself and makes himself known to her while she is sitting in the middle of the desert. There is nowhere that God won't go. There is no pit that's too deep. There is no wilderness that is too desolate. God seeks and finds and goes out to Hagar in the middle of her wilderness. And there he reveals himself. He makes himself known. And he brings a blessing. Hagar had experienced injustice. She had been victimized by her culture. She had been victimized by 
Sarai and by Abram, she had been sexually and physically abused. She was the lowest in her society as a slave. She had been driven from what, what little protection she had into the wilderness. And she's just sitting in the, in the wilderness waiting to die. And God sees her. And he seeks her out for the purpose of connection and blessing. And God tells her in the, in the verses that follow that he is with her, that he has heard her cry, that the child that she is carrying shall be called Ishmael, and that Ishmael's descendants will be too numerous to count. He doesn't just snap his fingers and change, his, change her circumstances, but, she, but he does meet her there, and he does make himself known, and he does bring a blessing. And then Hagar names God. Look at what it says in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Elroy, the God who sees me. As we've been talking about how names matter in this series, it's, it's good to point out that Hagar's name means stranger. So it is noteworthy that the stranger is the one that says, you are the God who sees me. Me. I think that most of us, to one degree or another, either in small ways or in big ways, Know what it's like to feel unseen or undervalued. And sometimes that can be in heartbreaking ways. Sometimes it's fairly innocent, you know, like, it, like feeling like you're the only one at the bar that the bartender just never seems to notice. You know, you can't get, the, can't get their attention. Or maybe you're the, you always just feel like the, the odd person out in the workplace or within a group of friends. And that can be discouraging, but it's pretty common. I know for me... I've always felt a little bit awkward in social situations. I have learned how to manage that. It's gotten better as an adult, and I've learned how to manage that. But I know growing up, I always felt like everyone else had the, knew the secret handshake but me. And as frustrating as that can seem, um, it's nothing compared to what some people face. That maybe because of, of a physical attribute of someone's body or of a quirk of their personality or maybe because of one's age or their gender or their ethnicity or the color of their skin or for some reason they are just made to feel less valuable and overlooked and that is heartbreaking I asked the question at the beginning what, what does it mean for us as individuals that God is El Roy it means the unseen are seen by God and those who feel forgotten are sought by God. And those who feel unloved are loved by God. And those who feel lost are found by God, even in the most desolate of wilderness. Corey ten Boom wrote that one of the things that helped her survive a Nazi concentration camp was that every morning at roll call there would be a nightingale up above them singing and she she wrote and said that she felt like that was a messenger of god telling her even though you are in the worst of all places i know where you are and there is singing above you 
And we see that played out all over the Bible, whether it's Joseph in an Egyptian prison or Paul in a Roman dungeon or Moses, baby Moses, you know, floating in a basket in the Nile River or Daniel in a lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in a furnace of fire or Stephen being stoned to death in the book of Acts. God meets people in the most desolate of wilderness, in the worst of all possible places. And let me just say, too, like, I, I realize that some of us are, are newer to the Bible and might not be familiar with all of those names that I just listed off. And if you, if you have the, the time and the opportunity, go back and replay the last minute of this message and write those names down and look them up and where they appear in the Bible and read their stories because their stories are worth reading. And we see again and again and again God meeting people in their wilderness. And sometimes we see God meeting people in a wilderness of their own making, like they're suffering because of their own dumb decisions. And even there, God is faithful and he seeks and he finds so that he may be found. Like, like Jacob, after deceiving his father and lying to his brother, finds himself on the run for his life and there has an encounter with God who says, I will be with you wherever you go. And Jacob was a knucklehead. Or David, after committing adultery and then murder, repents before God and God holds him and keeps him and sees him through the consequences of his actions. But God is never, he never forsakes David. So whatever is causing us, any of us, to feel unseen or undervalued or, or whatever type of wilderness we might be in, even a wilderness of our own making. God is El Roy, the God who sees and seeks so that he may find and be found, so that he might impart a blessing and so that we might know his goodness. Now, if that is true for us as individuals, then what does it mean for us as a group? For those of us who, you know, who follow God, who want to represent God in this world, what does it mean to be the people of Elroy? Now, to talk about that, I want to move from Genesis 16 over to the New Testament to Romans 16. And Romans 16 is often an overlooked chapter in the book of Romans, but it does give us a very interesting picture in what the New Testament church looked like and what it might look like to be a community of Elroy in this world. Um, but, in, but before we look at Romans 16, I think it's important for us to think about the context in which the early church, the first generation church, sort of grew up, sprung up and rooted, um, and that was the Roman Empire. So we need to think about what was life like in the Roman world. The Roman Empire in the first century AD was not a pleasant place to be for most people. First, it was highly male-dominated and driven by patriarchy, so it would not have been a good place if you were a woman. It also ran on slavery, much the way our modern world runs on electricity. Roughly one in four people in the Roman world were enslaved. 
very few Roman families would have had any moral qualms <laughs> about using slaves and then simply disposing of them without any type of repercussion. That's just the way that it was. And the Roman world placed very little value on human life. It was a place of violence and violation. They would throw slaves into the arena to be torn apart by animals or each other for entertainment. It would have been common through, you know, open windows in Roman apartments for you to hear your neighbors violating their slaves, their women, or their children. It was a rough place and a rough time in human history. Well, within the Roman Empire, there was a city, a wealthy Roman city called Corinth. And within Corinth, there was a citizen, one of the citizens of Corinth was a man named Gaius. And we don't know a lot about Gaius, uh, except he was wealthy, wealthy enough to have a large home, big enough for a community of people to meet inside of. And I'm going to ask you to use your imagination and picture Gaius inside of his large Roman home. And on this day that we are picturing Gaius, he has a guest over by the name of Erastus. And Erastus is a big deal in Corinth. He's kind of like the CFO of Corinth, the treasurer, the director of public works. When, when Erastus went out onto the street, people noticed him. And so what we picture right now in our heads should look pretty familiar. The rich and the powerful, the, the Gaiuses and Erastuses of the world dined together then just like they do now. They might do favors for one another, the cordial for one another, cordial toward one another. It's just how things work. But they're not the only two people at the table. And from here on out, what we picture is going to look very, very different from what we're used to seeing. Because also at that table is a man named Tertius. And when Tertius was out on the street, he was a nobody. And one of the reasons, uh, one of the ways that we know he was a nobody is by his occupation. He was a scribe. And we might associate writing with education and with status, but that was not the case in the Roman world. Writing was a, was a manual, tedious activity that a slave could learn to become more useful. So on most days, Tertius would have had one job, and that was to listen to and write down the words of free men. We also know that he was a nobody because of his name. Tertius means third, right between Secundus, second, and Quartus, fourth. In Roman society, only the firstborn son really mattered all that much, and the children of slaves didn't matter at all. They simply weren't worth naming. So, I forgot where I was. I'm sorry. Slaves at that time um, were just seen as another mouth to feed. They were um, quite literally just a number to be apprenticed and sold off once they were grown. Now, for days and weeks, 
Tertius had been at that table taking dictation from a man named Paul. And Paul was writing a letter to a church that he had never been to. Somehow by the mid-50s A.D., um, there were enough followers of Jesus in the capital city of Rome for a church to form and for Paul to reach out and introduce himself. And it's clear in Paul's letter that he wanted to visit in person, but he was unable to do so as yet, so he sent ahead a letter. And that letter has remained and has endured as, as Paul's most intricate um, theology of, of, of Jesus Christ, his letter to the church in Rome, or what we would just call the, the book of Romans in the New Testament. So for, for days, perhaps weeks, he dictated this letter to Tertius. And when he comes to the end of his letter, into chapter 16, he wants to get more personal. He wants to say hello to people that are there that, uh, in Rome, people that he knows personally, even though he hasn't, been to, he hasn't been to Rome. He's no doubt met some of these people through his travels, or maybe he knows of, of them secondhand. He also wants to send greetings from uh, people who are with him there in Corinth. And it's there in Romans 16, amidst all of these names, that we get a bit of a picture as to what it might have been like to be the community of Elroy in the midst of the Roman world. The first name that we see is the name of the letter bearer. There was no uh, postal system back then. And so the New Testament letters were conveyed by friends and close associates of the, from the letter writer, of the letter writer. And most likely, those letter bearers did more than just deliver the letter. They would have been present perhaps to read it, uh, certainly to answer questions, to explain it, uh, those types of things. The letter bearer was the representative of the letter writer. And in this case, in the case of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we know who the letter bearer was. Her name was, her name was Phoebe. She's the first name mentioned in Romans 16, and she's not greeted as the rest. She is commended. She's given kind of a letter of recommendation. Look at what Paul says in Romans 16.1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way which is worthy of his people and give her any help she may need for and give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. So Phoebe serves the church in Sincrea, which is a port town right next to Corinth where Paul is. He calls her a deacon or a deaconess, which just sort of means she had some, she served that church in some official capacity and just kind of making sure that that community was well cared for. But now she was being commissioned for an important task. And I think it's noteworthy that in that type of culture, a church driven by patriarchy of violence and violation, the person commissioned with the task of not only carrying the letter to Rome, but also to, be, to represent Paul and to be present to answer any questions was a woman named Phoebe. And then Paul goes on to, send, to say hi to, to, a, to a lot of people that he knows or knows of there at the church 
in Rome. And we're not going to read all the names. It's a lot of names. But they just kind of tumble out in astonishing variety. Men and women. Nearly as many women as men, which is highly unusual in a Greco-Roman letter. And we see Greek names like Tryphosa and Roman names like Julia and Jewish names like Mary. We see high status names like Aquila, which means eagle, or low status common names like Urbanus, which just means uh, city dweller. We see names of people that we can infer are young, like Rufus. Paul was friends with Rufus's mother. We can see names of people that we can infer were older, like Narcissus and Aristobulus, who were sort of patriarchs of established Roman families. Then Paul gives kind of a couple concluding exhortations, and then there's a very interesting sort of interruption that happens in verse 22, which says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Author and speaker and theologian Andy Crouch has spoken a lot and written a lot about what we can learn about the New Testament church from these names in Romans 16. Look at what he says about Tertius. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. In those brief words, a revolution in the Roman Empire is set in motion. Suddenly, we are no longer hearing from Paul. The scribe is not just writing, he is speaking. And he has a name. Tertius's appearance as a co-author of Paul's letter expands the circle of brothers and sisters to include those who do anonymous work, those who normally take orders, those who arrive without being greeted and depart without being noticed, those who were named something like number three. Imagine that moment. Paul is coming to the end of his letter and then he pauses. For days, Tertius has been focused on the page in front of him, trying to capture every word. But now Paul is not speaking. And I can picture Tertius looking up and seeing Paul look at him and say something like, Brother Tertius, you should greet them. Me? This was unheard of. But Paul, as a follower of El Roy, sees Tertius. He is Paul's brother, not just a hired hand. Then the text continues, probably in Tertius's voice, as he says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus send you their greetings. Tertius is not just a slave in Gaius's house. He's a guest. Right along Erastus, the director of public works. He's not just a hired hand. He is a member of the church that meets in Gaius's home. And then he sends greeting from Cortus. Fourth. Third passes on greeting from fourth. Is that Tertius's younger brother? We have no idea. What we do know is that Cortus was yet another person whose parents did not find worthy of a name more original than a number. What would it have been like 
to have been part of that type of community in the Roman world. Imagine, like, go back in your imagination. Think of that moment when, when Paul and Tertius, they have just finished their letter. And maybe Tertius is folding it up. Maybe he's rolling it up while the, the members of Gaius' household prepare for the evening meal. Meanwhile, the church of Corinth, the members of the church of Corinth begin making their way toward Gaius' home. And they're coming from different parts of the city, men and women. Young and old, Jew and Gentile, people of high birth and of low, many of whom, as they walk through the streets, would not have been noticed, and they're certainly not notable. Some of them have never had a proper name. Yet everyone, when they arrive at Gaius' home, will be embraced and greeted with a holy kiss. And they will call each other brother and sister, for they are family to each other. Perhaps Paul will, will teach that evening. There will be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They will enjoy a, a meal, a common meal together, because of whoever they are out there, they are equal in here. History would tell us that in spite of Opposition, fierce opposition against it. This underground Christian movement, this thing called church, would sweep through the Roman Empire. How? Well, it wasn't because they grew in power and then imposed their morality on everybody else. No, it was because they were a community of Elroy. A community where those who had been treated unjustly could be seen and honored and treated with respect. Where the lowly were seen and elevated and given dignity. Where the sick were seen and cared for. Where the lost felt found. Where even the rich and the powerful could be seen for more than just their status and their money and be loved for their humanity. Where all of those who felt unseen by their culture could be seen and welcomed into a family. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. This is what he was talking about. This is the thing that when done right, distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. You know, sometimes, I've, sometimes it seems like the thing that we feel like is like the, the biggest thing we have to offer to the world are our moral standards. And it's tricky because there is a standard of conduct for, that God has for his people, for those, for his own, for his family, for the church. Like there is a standard of conduct. And we have to talk about that and take that seriously. But in all honesty, it's not that unusual for religions to have you know, their beliefs on moral, ethical, cultural standards that they think everyone else should, should live by. That is not that unusual. What is unusual is that we would be a community of distinctiveness and we would, with our lives and with our purity, like all of that kind of stuff, but we'd also be a community of Elroy, a God that sees, not that just spies on people to make them feel guilty so they can change their behavior, but a God that sees and seeks and finds so that he may be found. So that he might love and welcome into a family where there is care and compassion and dignity and respect and grace. The Roman world needed that. 
And our world does too. And when done right, it is as surprising and unexpected and countercultural as it has ever been. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray first for those of us that feel unseen. For those of us who feel mistreated, for those of us who are in some type of wilderness even right now. And my prayer will be that we will feel God's pursuit of us. His radical, passionate, reckless love for us. That he, he wants us to know him and experience his goodness. And then I'm also going to pray for us as a church, as a community, that God will make us brave. To be as loving and as accepting and as countercultural in our love as the, as the early church was in the Roman Empire. May we show our community, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, who El Roy is. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are, I know, many in this room, watching right now online at other campuses, there, there are many within the sound of my voice that right now just feel unseen. And Father, that is heartbreaking, for you see them. And I pray that whatever wilderness people might be in that are hearing my voice right now, Father, they would feel your pursuit, your love, your reckless, passionate love for us. And your desire that we might know you and experience your goodness. And Father, I pray for us as a church. Make us brave, I pray. Help us to, to, to see what you see, love the way that you love, and represent, and represent you well, and show our world who Elroy is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.